Nosferatu, to the undead. He who drinketh the blood of his victims and turns them as well into phantoms of the night. He is as a shadow and hath no reflection. At night he penetrates through walls and doors. In shape of a bat he wafts into the chambers of the sleeping. In shape of a black wolf he hunts down those who flee. Abandon all hope, he whom he doth approach. Welcome to Now Playing's Nosferatu Retrospective Series. Makes men's bodies to quake and their teeth to chatter in their heads. Hosted by Jacob. I believe what I see with my own eyes. Arnie. I love the darkness and the shadows. Where I can be alone with my thoughts. And Stuart. We are scientists engaged in the creation of memory. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. At midnight, all sorts of evil spirits are set loose. We hope you enjoy the show. If it has to be today, it has to be. I'm ready. Today we're discussing Nosferatu, starring Max Schreck, Gustav von Wegerheim, directed by F.W. Murnau. This is the werewolf that roams the podcasts, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, who has the name that, does it not sound like the midnight cry of the death bird? <laughs> Indeed, the death bird. Happy New Year's, guys. We've made a resolution. We're just going to do all silent movies from now on. Nothing past 1931. I just like the idea of doing all silent podcasts. Imagine how fast the editing would go. <laughs> I mean, no time spent on those credits now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole new look for us. No, that, of course, that is not what we're doing. Why are we covering a movie that is over 100 years old? Is it the oldest we'll ever go? I dare say yes. I, it really could be. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if it got remade, maybe. But yeah, it does feel like we are really at the beginnings of horror movies, and we are at the beginnings of a big Universal Monsters retrospective. Something that has been requested a lot was that people wanted us to go back and look at the creature from the Black Lagoon and Bella Lugosi's Dracula and all those classic black and white Universal Studios monster properties and follow them to their modern day reboots i guess we're getting started here today with a very unofficial version of bram stoker's dracula nosferatu is essentially a fan film that became a classic on its own i mean trademark copyright what did that really mean in the 1920s a lot this movie (laughs) couldn't get released it became a financial flop because the widow of bram stoker says you ain't playing that here But if it flopped, how does everybody know this film? I feel like this film casts, dare I say it, a very long shadow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, again, we talked about, we've been talking silent movies just a few weeks ago. If you are a gold level donor to the show, we started our retrospective on sci-fi dystopias by looking at the German film Metropolis. Also, kind of in the same German expressionistic wheelhouse made within five years of this movie. And yeah, it is a classic because I watched it a lot in film school. I'll just go ahead and put it out there. When they wanted to cover the origins of film, they always went to the Germans to talk about particularly the use of shadow, black and white, film grammar. This is really where like movies started to learn a language. And I just remember a lot of clock watching. It was like, uh-oh, they're stringing up a 16 millimeter of the last <laughs> laugh, and you got to watch these over-the-top performances. Birth of a Nation. I'm like, God help me. You want to clear a room? I bet you they don't even play that one anymore. That one just, no way. I had to watch Birth of a Nation three times in three different film classes in college. And that's where I saw Nosferatu my first and only time. And I was really interested in it at that time because 
It was right around the time a movie called Shadow of the Vampire was coming out about the making of this film, and so it felt like it was really tying in. It was giving me some background that I wanted to see this more modern John Malkovich Willem Dafoe movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because that's around the time I did discover Nosferatu. I actually watched the 70s version first, and I'm like, wow, I really like that. Let me go watch that silent film, and, and I like that. And then, yeah, Shadow of the Vampire came out like maybe the next year or something after I discovered these. And this is one, not every Halloween, but I do watch this like maybe every other Halloween. Like, this is part of my October viewing. Really? Yeah, I really like this Nosferatu film. Again, I saw it so much that I never felt the need to go back to it after film school. And it wasn't like they'd always played the whole movie. They just wanted to show you how you might... I mean, it's it's weird. If you're not a filmmaker, you might not even care about some of these things. But like the way that characters, you know, they have to move in the same direction. And, and you just want to create... It can be really confusing if you're a bad filmmaker to put things together. And these early silent movies, what they'll tell you. And they'll make you make silent movies. The first things I ever shot were things that did not have a soundtrack. It's a way of recognizing that dialogue is a crutch and you have to learn how to convey information in a visual medium. That is a skill that silent movies, the art of them, is still relevant for filmmakers coming up. But they can be often a chore to sit through. I remember many classics just being so tedious. Well, I got to ask you, Stuart, I know when we did Metropolis, there's lots of different cuts. With these black and white silent films, they're always rediscovering new footage. Like, what is the status with Nosferatu? Like, have we always had what, what reviewed this? I think it was just over 90 minutes. I think that the basic structure of it hasn't changed. The film tinting, some of the optical effects that they use here haven't always been available in all of the prints. It should just be said, when they released this movie, the producer was actually really into the occult. He knew Aleister Crowley. He had written a script about meeting Satan. He had just made a film about, like, the Gollum and Jewish mythology. He really wanted this to be a whole beginnings of... Uh, like a horror movie staple. But he had the arrogance to think, we don't need to pay the Bram Stoker. <laughs> like, we'll just do this. That The reason why it's called Nosferatu, Count Orlock, is I guess there was some travel writer in the early 1800s that found this legend of a Nosferatu. Actually, they identified it incorrectly, but they tried to say that vampires are Nosferatu. And this is a way of legally saying we weren't ripping off Bram Stoker's creation. We were going with a mythology that existed long before. I did try to, in preparation for this, I tried, really tried to read Bram Stoker's Dracula. I got maybe a third of the way through and I'm just like, look, I had a speed, I was skimming through stuff and it just was not clicking through me. Maybe that was the problem. I, I won't put all the blame on that book, but from that first third that I read, I did recognize I'm like, oh yeah, this is lifting a lot from that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I did a books and nachos on Dracula way back when because I felt like it was required reading before I could review Stephen King's Salem's Lot. So back when we reviewed Salem's Lot, I did a books and nachos on Dracula and I was harsh on it. I had real trouble getting through that thing. It is slow. It is ponderous. There's a whole lot of like romance stuff in it yeah when i got to letters going back and forth between the two women i'm like i just i gotta tap out i don't care i'm still working through it i wanted to have it read <laughs> but i figure if this is unofficial i can unofficially not be done yet i will have read that book by the time we get to bella lugosi but it isn't a fleet read i will give you that and the surprise for me has been that this story is a reconstruction of reading ships logs diaries letters it makes it kind of uh, much more active i have to to figure out what's going on kind of thing. It doesn't play like a penny dreadful kind of cheap, gory little story that I imagined it to be. It's, again, like maybe that's why it's considered a classic is that there's more artistry to all of that. I, verdict's still out as to whether I like it or not, but I recognize it's not an easy read. And yeah, maybe you just want to take a few ideas, go with a myth that's a hundred years earlier than the book and say, we didn't rob you. We didn't rip you off. 
but they were successful. When this movie came out in the early 20s, it didn't take long for the widow of Bram Stoker to say, destroy the film. And so they were actively out there finding prints and destroying them. And so the movie kind of, what I understand is sometimes people would cut good bits out of it and mix it with other films. And so there, there's like ripoffs and, and kind of vampire <laughs> movies in the 30s that have images from this, but aren't this. Yeah, I know before the film started, there was a bunch of text explaining, like, they did have to reconstruct some parts, but it was mostly done, like, by the 30s, they had it reconstructed. It wasn't like Metropolis, where, like, they discovered a whole complete cut of it in, in, in some closet right. decades later. And it's also worth pointing out that film was shot on nitrate, which was highly flammable. You wouldn't need a widow out there to destroy it. <laughs> if you just have a projectionist that has a cigarette habit. We've seen Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. yeah if, he's, if you just got a smoker running the projector, you could lose <laughs> a film. And so, yeah, it was a lot of work. The restoration that I saw, I think it was released on DVD in 2008. It gave you two different options. You can see it with the original German titles or you can see it with the uh, English-American titles, which I was the one that... Why do extra work? Why have subtitles on top of my inner titles? I mean, I'm reading anyway. I may as well go for the authentic experience. I had the German <laughs> title cards. All right, you be you. And so did I. The version I watched didn't offer me English intertitles. And so I'm watching part of the movie, and I'm like, how am I supposed to get this? And then I realized that I could turn on subtitles so I could read over the reading. <laughs> so I started over with my English subtitles turned on. Yeah. So I think there were prints out there that had missing parts and just singed parts and what have you. Like all old movies, the authentic official version may be hard to tap down. But I don't think that there are radically different versions of this in the way that Metropolis had an extra half hour in some versions. This is largely, as far as I remember, always been this movie that we're here to talk about. According to Wiki, there is a 63-minute version. I think that's the first version I saw because I remember this film being an hour. And for some reason, that's always stuck with me, even though I've watched this repeatedly since then. Mm. But yeah, I'm like, oh, no, it's 90 minutes. I Yeah, I had to figure there was some older version because I know I've watched an hour version that really like was hard to follow the first time. That sounds right. Again, I didn't always watch the whole movie when I watched it, too. Again, they would just cite certain scenes just so that they could talk about how you might direct an actor to move or something. In film school, there's just not enough time in class to even do a full hour. But Murnau was a big deal. I mean, if they didn't show this one, they played his film The Last Laugh. He really is one of the innovators of, like, cinematic tricks. And I think you will see that in this movie. Like, the superimpositions, the negative, the tinting, all of these things. He was really trying to create a supersensory experience. And so I think that this movie, more than maybe a lot from the era, is easier for modern audiences to watch because it, it's just visually has a lot more going on than some of the epics. Yeah, we're going to get special effects in this. Yeah, dissolves. And stop motion to make it look <laughs> like you're a ghost or something. I mean, you laugh, but yes, these were probably very mind-blowing. There are stories about when people actually saw Max Shrek in the makeup, that they were like, literally fainting in the theater, screaming in the theater. This was shocking. That's because he's a real vampire, right? <laughs> we talked about Shadow of the Vampire. That's the whole premise of that film. Yeah, for those that don't know, they made a behind-the-scenes movie that was Oscar-nominated. Willem Dafoe got an Oscar nomination for playing the actor Max Schreck, who, historically speaking, we don't know a lot about. He did come from theater. He made this, I think this was his one of the few movies that he actually made, and disappeared shortly thereafter. Kind of a mysterious character. Why don't we go with the idea that he wasn't just playing a vampire, he was an actual vampire. I remember the movie being really good, and hunt it down if you can. It's kind of a difficult film to find, but uh, yeah, I would like to revisit that at some point. And what a great name, Max Shrek. It is a better name for a vampire than Count Orlock. <laughs> Mm. And, of course, the origins for both the Christopher Walken character in Batman Returns, which heavily was influenced, as all Tim Burton is, from the German Expressionistic era. And, yes, that cute, semi-cute green troll. What is he? Shrek. He's an ogre. Ogre. Okay, there we go. Yes, that, was, that name was also taken from this iconic film actor. And I think it's much more hideous than this <laughs> vampire here. 
But let's get into it, Arnie. Let's find out how close this is to Bram Stoker, given the plot to Nosferatu. The year is 1838, and real estate agent Thomas Hutter has been sent to Transylvania to meet a client named Count Orlock. Orlock wants to buy an estate in Hutter's town. Hutter goes, enticed by the thought of the big commission, and he ignores Orlock's strange appearance and even lets go when Hutter cuts his thumb and Orlock starts sucking on the appendage to drink the blood. Orlock delays the purchase, but when Hutter drops a photo of his beautiful wife Ellen, Orlock immediately buys the property, which happens to be just across the street from Hutter's own home. Back home, Ellen has been having nightmarish visions that her husband is in danger. And he is, for Orlock is a Nosferatu. Hutter finds the Count sleeping in his coffin. Hutter hides, and Orlock departs for his new home in Germany, leaving Hutter behind. Fearing Orlock has designs on Ellen, Hutter races to try and beat Orlock to Germany. Aboard the ship, Orlock kills the entire crew and the captain. He carries his coffin to his new home. He then goes to visit Ellen to feed on her blood. But while drinking from the young woman's neck, Orlock loses track of the time. The sun rises and Orlock is killed by its rays. This victory is not without a cost, though, as Ellen dies from her blood loss as credits roll. And as we start, we have sort of a novelistic take on this. They are actually going to say that everything we're experiencing is a book that was published in 1838, which is a good 60 years before Bram Stoker published Dracula. See, he didn't rip it off. <laughs> Couldn't possibly be influenced in any way. An account of the Great Death and Weisberg, which is a made-up German town, doesn't exist, but they're claiming it's northern coastal Germany. And Nosferatu, they try to use flowery language to give you the impression that Nosferatu means undead or vampire, but the word actually, the origins of it, is disease spreader. And I do think it's interesting to think about the fact that this movie is coming out just a few years after Spanish flu would have ravaged the world. That had to be a thought in, in why this would be considered so scary. There's also a common criticism, and I guess we could just get it out of the way now, but with especially the vampire, the Dracula storytelling, it's got its roots perhaps in anti-Semitism. Oh my God. Like this is the foreigner coming to your land, bringing the rats, bringing the disease. I mean, the look of Nosferatu on this, it plays into those very bad depictions that anti-Semites make of Jewish people. Yeah, I wasn't going to get that out of the way. It was going to be my thesis. Oh, okay. That was, my, that was my discovery in this viewing. You know, when I was in film school, I didn't really have that historical framework. I didn't think of it that way. It was just some old movie that sort of was the origin of vampire movies and horror movies. And now putting it in specifically in the same way that we now look at Metropolis context of the 1920s to know that this is what's coming out of Germany. Yeah. Uh, about, yes, Jewish people are about to suffer greatly. You know, we have a storyline where a man's trying to move into the neighborhood and uh, will be vilified for it, vaporized. Yeah. There's something very uncomfortable in the way that this pairs with true, genuine, real-world horror, both in the Spanish flu and in the Holocaust. Yeah, none of that stuff was on my mind when I fell in love with this movie. Like, I didn't realize that maybe accounted for the look of Count Orlock. I just thought it was a great monster design, but there is that subtext to be wary of. For sure, for sure. And I, I again, to me... Not everyone's going to have this perspective. To me, it makes the movie more interesting to see it through that lens, to re recognize that perhaps that is the horror of what's happening here. Because, you know, a movie from 1922, is it going to scare us? Not in any traditional way, but by telling us what was scary to the people of that time, and as a global population, us having just gone through a pandemic, I think that there are ways to connect with this movie and where it's at. Yeah, but they don't make a big deal about that. It is text, not subtext, during a portion of the movie, but a small portion of the movie. But there is subtextually, again, in the creature design and, and all of it. And again, just what we know about what is about to happen in Germany where this is being made. It's hard for me to shake it this time. But yes, just go with the premise that Nosferatu means undead and that this is a story of vampires. Act one gets us to meet, it was so hard for me not to call him Jonathan and Mina, but uh, <laughs> these are these are our loving you know, heroes and heroines that are going to be savaged by a vampire. Hutter and Ellen. Mm-hmm. 
Something that's interesting, though, that happens right at the get-go. You can look at these early stuff as just cliche. She's playing with a cat in a flower bed. He's smiling in the mirror and what have you. But when he brings her flowers and she says, why did you kill them? I think that's an interesting foreshadow you may not even anticipate. The idea that what he has done is going to kill... You know, women's beauty is often associated with flowers and what have you, that he's essentially bringing about her death by doing what he's about to do. It's a line that really caught my attention this time because I'm like, oh, you know, actively have to watch this for now playing. And it's a silent film. So anytime they're going to take the time to put words on the screen, I'm like, those are probably important. Yes. So yeah, I definitely wrote that line down. And yeah, I think... Ellen is the flower that's going to be killed by Hooter or Hutter's recklessness throughout this film. Which I didn't expect. I didn't expect the main female to die in the movie. So when she's talking about the flowers being killed, I wasn't quite sure why that line was there. Yes, after the movie was over. I mean, it's been 25 years since I've seen this. So when the movie was over, I figured that out. Yeah, it's a nice, uh, usually I don't use the word subtle in talking about silent films, but it is a subtle way to talk about a cost that I was not expecting. I did not think that this character was going to die. Again, I never even had the mentality that Jonathan or Thomas, as we'll, we'll go with the real names here, <laughs> that Thomas was at fault. But he is at fault because of greed, right? His boss tells him he's going to make a lot of money if he sells the house across the river to his grace from Transylvania. Yeah, I have to ask about, I guess, not Renfield, but Nock, the real estate agent. He has this very strange letter from Orlock that does not look like traditional, like, Anglo-Saxon characters. They're very weird scribblings. He even tells Thomas, like, it's going to take a little sweat and even a little blood to sell this. So it feels like Nock... Is he already under Orlock's power? He definitely is under his power later on, but it feels like he's been persuaded already. Well, I will say this. Nock is being played by one of the few Jewish actors in the premise. Mm. And so you could have the reading that he's in the club, right? Like these things that are coming from the East that aren't quite lily white like our Germanic blood. Yes, that he's seems to be crazy from the get-go, right? He's cackling and these characters on the page, you know, they're runes, they're symbolic, they're occult. And so, yes, he is sacrificing this young man by him being so wanting to make so much money, putting him in harm's way and bringing immigration, let's just call it what it is, immigration to this all-white community. And this is a good lesson to learn from this film is never trust a real estate agent because what they're trying to sell him sight unseen <laughs> looks like ruins. I mean, it looks perfect for Count Orlock. I think he'd really dig it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. We, I, You wouldn't want him to have like a really polished mansion or that. That would be strange. Something modern. But I do agree. Like, it's funny when they cut you, like, sell him one of those houses across from your own and they're all just like these dilapidated buildings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can move into the ghetto again. Like, all, yeah. all this stuff feels important when we think about German history around this time and the, the decade to come. Does it feel like Hitler propaganda? Not exactly. I'm not going to accuse the filmmakers of that, but they're tapping into sentiments and fears that were growing and would become something else. Yeah, if you don't want to get into specific fears of the Jewish people moving in, at least foreigners, there's definitely that fear of foreigners. Yeah, let's face it. The Germans were trying to make something out of their films because their whole industry after World War I had been destroyed. And so it was really important to make these populist movies. And they were trying to beat Hollywood at its own game. And yes, they were very much trying to tap into what Europe might have been feeling at this time. And again, Thomas is all the happy to leave his wife. I think there's some judgment of that as well, that he's going to step away from this happy relationship, give his wife off to some friends, and just blithely go out on a horse. Yeah, he's told he's going to have to travel through the land of thieves and specters. Like, he already knows that this is dangerous. Yeah, but at least he leaves her with people who don't live in the ghetto. It's a very nice house. Mm -hmm. The music gets creepy, too. I don't know if your version did this. Although it is a silent movie, there was a score that was specifically composed for it, and they did include it on my DVD. 
Okay, yeah, like this score, I thought it was amazing. I, I don't know if it's the same one as he watched, but whatever score, I, the version I watched, and I got to imagine it's the original one, like I thought it was really great. Like the, the very innovative, kept me into the film. Like it, it matched the moods going on. I think Psycho ripped it off at one point. Yeah, Hans Erdmann, if, if you see that name, and I don't know why they put another score on it, but this is what you would have heard in 1922. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I heard the original because this movie started with an overture. Yes. And I I doubt if you'd start with an overture of somebody else's music, and it is very good music for this. If you can't have sound, having it scored like this worked well. I liked the score a lot more than I liked the intertitles. I mean, again, I think they're sparing. I mean, I've definitely seen some silent films where they have so much information to give, they have to establish so much. They've pared down the characters from Bram Stoker's novel. There's not as many. The friend Lucy and all her suitors, all of that just goes away. The part where I stopped reading the book, yeah, get rid of her. Mm -hmm. I mean, there might be a reason to have them. We're definitely going to talk about them when we get to the Coppola version, which strives to be an authentic adaptation of Bram Stoker. But for here, they've definitely limited the choices and limited the inner titles and done what they can through music. And uh, let's read the room about this, too. They tried this process of tinting the film, although this is a black and white film, they can process black and white so that in some scenes it's more yellow when someone's holding a candle or it's daylight, red at dusk, blue or green at night. I thought they did this because this is how you did day for night back then. Like you couldn't shoot in the dark. You didn't have the lights or enough mm-hmm. candles to light it up. So you sure. have to shoot everything during the day. And I thought this was an innovative way to tell me what time of day it was by making it like a dark blue or I thought it was effective in communicating what I think they were trying to communicate with the changing of time. I also got that and started making notes about it, but I don't know how consistent it necessarily is at times, like, or maybe it's the version I watched. I mean, there's yellow, it's honestly a piss yellow that (laughs) most of the film is in, and then it turns blue, which I took as nighttime, Mm -hmm. but it's also blue in dreams, and then it also turns green at some points. Yeah, I mean, you figure that out. The warm colors are for daylight. The colder colors are for the spooky time. And and again, yes, he is passing into a land full of superstition. He stops at an inn and picks up a book all about vampires. Like, that's the tour guide. It's like, hey, learn about our phantoms and demons. Like, we got it all here for you. Yeah, these people are weirded out. Like, he goes to this inn, he's eating, and then he's mentioned that he's going to Orlok's place, and they all really clam up, and they're like, you can't travel tonight. Like, there are werewolves out there. We see, it looks like a hyena to me. I was about to say, I don't think that's a werewolf. (laughs) Maybe they were trying to make a creepy werewolf. Like, that's what Germans thought werewolves were? Hyenas? I don't know, but... Yeah, it's cute, actually. It's cute that we're, I mean, it doesn't look like a normal wolf. It like scares some horses off and that's it. Yeah, but we have some kind of creature running around in the night. And you're right. Let's just talk about it. In 1921, 1922, cameras were big and cumbersome. Getting enough light to actually photograph was difficult. On-location shooting is not easily done. And so, yeah, these things are extra special to have this in here, to be able to cut away from the inn to actually see some kind of werewolf running around (laughs) in an actual forest and not a studio set would have been amazing to people at the time. And also worth pointing out, again, this book is called Of Vampires, Terrible Phantoms, and the Seven Deadly Sins, emphasizing to me that the greed that is driving this character is the reason why all this bad is happening. Yeah, I definitely felt more judgmental towards Thomas this viewing, like really paying attention to everything. And yeah, it is that greed. Like, I'm going to make a lot of money off selling this house, even though like he's given every warning sign. I do love instead of that Bible, they have that book about vampires in his in room. Mm hmm. But act two, he's going to get there. And we have the meeting of Max Shrek, which I just got to say, like, iconic, right? Like, no matter what you want to say about the rudimentary camera tricks that they might pull, we still use this makeup now. And, like, this, from the Salem's Lot TV movie, just in so many ways, this defines... What we do in the shadows, yeah. The monsters, Yes, right, right. Rob Zombie, even. An innovator like Rob Zombie still 
goes back to this 1922 movie. It set the blueprint and it's just kind of beautiful to behold. It still works as an image. I've got to say, Orlock may be an ugly representation of Jewish people. You can have that reading and be offended, but I also just think super creepy. This is new contributions to the vampire lore. That This has a few that aren't in that Bram Stoker book, like those weird front fangs and the, the, Bela Lugosi isn't even an accurate depiction of what's in Stoker, but this is really wild what they're going with here. Oh, it's just a tremendous makeup job, not for the time. It's a tremendous makeup job for any time. Mm -hmm. It's so unsettling. Yeah. Again, was he really a vampire? You could almost <laughs> you could almost go with that. Yeah, truthfully, I can see why somebody would come up with that as a story here because I don't know Max Shrek from anything. I would love to see how much of this was makeup, how much of this was man because it's just a creepy looking version of a vampire and if I was Hutter here, I'd just be like, nope, the commission not worth it. I'm headed home. Yeah, it's not just the makeup, it's his body language, he's so stiff, how thin he is, like just everything is off-putting about this. And then when a dude gets up to suck your blood because you cut your finger with a bread knife, like, don't you get out of there at that point? Let me ask, because that was my curiosity. Imagine a world where you didn't know about vampires and Dracula, and you just started watching this movie. Would you know what's going on here? Would you have the idea... I think you would, that this character is some kind of blood-drinking monster. Because he's been reading that book that was foreshadowing, and everyone, like, freaked out when he says, I'm going to Count Orlok's castle. We know, it's telegraphed to us, even to the ignorant of vampire lore, that this is a vampire. I mean, Stuart, he's got a, like, skeleton that rings the alarm <laughs> yes. bell. Like, we yes. know he's evil. Right, right. But is there also, I know with vampires, especially modern vampires, you know, you asked me to describe what a classical vampire is. There is some gender and sexual fluidity mm -hmm. to him, I feel. And I do wonder how that plays to 1922 audience. Because for me, a, a modern audience, this does feel like, ooh, I'm repelled by this man making a move on me. Yeah, well, here's the thing about Germany. And I mean, if you've seen Cabaret, you know this. They were actually pretty progressive around that time. And then unfortunately, a lot of homosexuals ended up in the gas chamber. But at that time, you could be out as a homosexual, but it was considered, it was othered in the same way that Jewish identity was othered. Is this really Germany? Might be the question you'd ask about this man making a move on another man. But it's a creepy moment where no doubt this, this old guy backs him into the chair. They use shadows so well in this movie and then cut, we're in the yellow of the daylight and he's waking up in the chair saying, I got mosquito bikes on my neck. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. And when he wakes up, a lot of this still feels very stage performances where we're going to set the camera in one place. It's never going to cut angles. It's going to be straight on, but I do feel like this director at least got some interesting compositions. Not talking about the use of shadows and, and the great stuff like that, but just compositions, the way that Thomas wakes up in that chair. And obviously Kubrick used this for Barry Lyndon, like, which is another film with just some great composed shots. Like, not every shot is great, but I, I feel like even though you have a lot of static camera work here, you do get some really interesting frames. This is why we still watch it in film school. This is the argument for it. It may not play in the storytelling conventions that we expect as modern audiences, but you can still learn so much from visual storytelling. And I guess vampires do cast shadows. They need to because it looks cool. You know, like they've changed <laughs> that. And I guess this one, I haven't gotten far enough into Bram Stoker's to know, but what I read was that this is the one that introduces the idea that sunlight can actually kill a vampire. Yeah, no, that's original to this. That's a huge thing. Something we associate with all vampire stories. That was introduced by Nosferatu. That is not in Stoker's novel. But while they're doing whatever in the castle, in the dark, in the shadows, these two men, we have the wife at home, or actually she's living with friends, some rich couple, a man and his sister have taken her in, and she started to walk on the balcony, sleepwalk, that she is being impelled by something. You, you'd hope that she's dreaming of reuniting with her husband, but I think it's Orlock that she's secretly thinking about. Well, yeah, there was an earlier scene where they're signing the paperwork, and I feel like Orlock wasn't set on buying this house until that locket fell out, and he saw that picture of Ellen, and he's like, what a lovely neck, which I laughed at that moment. I thought that was funny. And, like, he signs the papers immediately after that, so it is about getting to Ellen. Uh, what a lovely neck is a laugh-out-loud line. You know, we have chastised, or at least I know I have, horror movies in the past because they have strange things like 
Pet Cemetery, for example, has a cemetery where things come back to life. That is its plot, and so we go with it. But it also has the ghost of that guy who died because he was hit by a car, and I think we were all like, why is there a psychic phenomenon in here? I now think this all goes back here, because I thought she was having psychic visions and psychic premonitions of danger with Count Orlok, and I'm like, well, if this classic can do it, that may be why so many, not just Stephen King, but Stephen King and others decide to start introducing these random psychic phenomena. I feel like this is maybe something not explored in a lot of vampire movies. I know they like they have that power of persuasion, but the fact that he uses shadow and we get that great scene of Thomas sleeping and the shadow overcomes him. And I feel like that's what Nosferatu, he's able to work through these, like you said, Arnie, these psychic connections. I, I do feel like it's pretty established here. Like this is just a power of the vampires that their shadows, if they're able to overcome you, they could create some kind of connection. And the use of shadow in this film is just amazing. When he's grabbing Hutter's heart there and it's just the shadow on the heart I mean there's artistry and a great vision behind this yeah, but there's also the blood. We've talked a lot about the shadows because, again, that's visual. But you asked, what is she being impelled by? What is the psychic link? Subtextually, if we're going with what I'm proposing, what is the threat of immigrants? They're going to take our women, yeah. Yeah, your bloodline will not be pure anymore. The fear of the vampire is the fear that they take your blood. And that really is, again, the word Nosferatu means disease. It doesn't mean vampire, it means disease. What bringer of disease. And so I think that that is really the nightmare scenario here is, yes, they're going to move in, they're going to take your women. I mean, America has its own versions and stories of this as well. So we can't be so arrogant as to say, oh, those Germans. Birth of a nation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like it's so easy for people to fear other bloodlines and what that means about their own should there be interracial mixing. But yeah, we also have around this time, they call the doctor. He says she's got blood congestion. I I don't (laughs) think that's a thing. I mean, later, I think in the book, it just says she has an unknown illness. Uh-huh. Yeah, blood congestion is not something I don't, I don't think there's a pill for that one yet. You give them leeches. It was the 1800s. <laughs> but it's confusing. So this is Dr. Seavers. And then we have this other guy that is really the Van Helsing. And I don't feel like you really need him. Are you talking about the guy that's showing off Venus fly traps? And I, I have no idea why he's in this. I'm like, yes. cut this part. Lose these frames. Have these ones burn up. Professor Bulver is the Van Helsing that, again, he, he very much comes into the Dracula narrative in the same way as the scientist who can see in the natural world these parasites. These things that latch on to us that seem, again, continues this flower motif. It looks like something in the garden, but should a fly land on it, suddenly it has fangs and closes in on it, or protozoa. He's sort of giving a scientific credence to these racial fears. Yeah, Jacob, you talk about losing these frames. I gotta say, I'm really with this film and into this film for like the first half hour. But once we leave Hutter and that shadow scene comes, this movie in my mind, drags for about the next 45 minutes. Really? Okay, I'm actually going to make the argument, and it comes from someone that's had to watch a lot longer silent movies. At 90 minutes... I mean, we we all have with Metropolis. I watched a four-hour silent film called Intolerance as part of the movie challenge back when... It really does test your tolerance, that yeah. one. <laughs> yes, it does. And so, I mean, I've seen long silent films. And, you know, with our review of Metropolis, we've said perhaps silent film is not my genre. But it just started to, with this Venus flytrap thing and the various stuff on the ship. It just started to grate. Maybe, but I would argue. I, I'm not saying you couldn't lose things and make it faster and more palatable. But for a silent film, this thing still plays. Part of it is that we're dealing with vampires, right? Like the last laugh is just about like a drunk guy that loses his job. And we have all this subjective camera work about what it's like to be drunk. That looks kind of cool, but goes on endlessly. Uh, Bernal, I think, is better in the horror genre. You know, he made a Faust. He did make a few other horror kind of plots. I think he is credited largely, this director is celebrated, for how his artistry helped Yeah, shape horror films, universal horror movies, and beyond the genre on film. I feel like, yeah, Act 3 is the race home. That Jonathan basically gets some bedsheets, gets out the window, and he's trying to get back on a horse and on foot. At the same time, Orlok has gotten six coffins full of dirt. 
that fast-forwarded effect of Orlock using, like, flash speed, bullet time. <laughs> it's like stop motion where they're cutting out frames. They did it earlier when he's driving up in the stagecoach to pick up Tom. I don't know. I like that. There's a charm with its old timiness. And it just, again, visually it tells me, okay, there's something weird about this guy. There's there's something off about him. And I, I like, in a movie like that, you're forced to in these silence films be so visual, but it's something I really appreciate. I just chuckled at it because it is so old timey. I just can't believe his strength, man. He's just lifting those coffins full of dirt. Like Orlock's got some muscle. He needs a Renfield, right? Like if you yeah. are carrying your own <laughs> coffins, like you're not cool anymore. Like you're just walking <laughs> around doing grunt work. Like you need minions. Later on when he's carrying it through Germany is hysterical. <laughs> yeah. But keep in mind, he's not binding people and, and turning them into vampires. He's killing them. He's infecting them with plague and he's bringing plague. We're actually told in the booklet that the dirt that he's carrying is dirt that goes all the way back to the Black Death in, you know, what, 1400. It says they got to have the dirt that they were buried in. So Mm -hmm. he died somehow. And like, we're not going to get at the origins of how vampires are made here by getting bit. You're right. Like when we get the stuff in that booklet, it's just that as they go to port to port, there's people showing up with these bites in their neck and dying and there's rats and plague everywhere. But we do know, obviously, we covered a whole series about it. Racial sensitivity goes out the window when plague is involved, that people do try to point fingers. And I do think the idea that we can look at the origins of plague as being from one group of people is a habit. Well, frankly, it's something recently uh, that was proposed. And so I think that is the fear, is that if you let these people into your neighborhoods, they're going to screw your women and infect your community and your idyllic life won't be yours anymore. He's coming for you. Now, this middle part here, it's worth pointing out, we're building up to two theatrical movies this year based on Dracula. And one of them is Renfield with Nicolas Cage. And the second one will be out in late summer. It's called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And it is the part in the Stoker novel specifically about this ship voyage. We have here in Nosferatu... Probably the most famous image in Nosferatu, the best stuff, is when the first mate goes down into the ship's hold trying to figure out why all the sailors are getting sick. And we have that great shot of Orlock just levitating to a standing position, right? Like, that's what I always think about when I think about Nosferatu, is him coming out of that coffin and the rats pouring out. It's a great image. It's not what I think of. I think of the scene with the shadow and the stairs. And see, I go to where he's walking through the door and he's all like stiff, creeping up on Thomas. I think the shadow and the stairs bit was even in a Snickers commercial or something. But this ship stuff is the best stuff in the remainder of the film. I think the first two acts are the best, but here with the stuff on the ship, it could be its own movie. It's very suspenseful. It's like 10 Little Indians, you know? Yeah, I could see why they'd make this a new movie. I feel like at this time, with the technology, trying to get cameras on an actual ship, and probably the expense, like, yeah, you could have a great Nosferatu just at sea movie. Yeah, it's gonna be like The Thing, is what I'm imagining. A polka dot man from Suicide Squad is the star of it. Yeah, he looks like a vampire. (laughs) So, I'm looking forward to that one as well. But here, again, I just want to say I really enjoy just that image of the captain tying himself to the the steering wheel as the vampire comes for him. Effective image making. Which I know that is in the Dracula novel. Like, that's stolen. Yes. Oh, yeah. They find the captain just that way. Like, why would a captain tie himself to the mast and and be in this situation? Good mystery. And why does this one? Because, yeah, they're down to two men. One goes below with an axe and gets so afraid he jumps ship. And this last remaining sailor ties himself so he could keep steering the ship. Is this, like, is he just under the command of Orlock? Like, he has to do it. It feels weird that he would, he's so devoted to getting to the port. No, no. I think that's a captain's motto, right? Like, you go down with the ship they're like mailmen no no matter what the weather you gotta do it yeah (laughs) yeah no matter what i'm getting this rain sleet vampires even though i'm bringing plague to germany (laughs) i've got to do this and apparently this is not just like one port they've been stopping in all these ports we'll find out from newspaper clippings knock has been actually put into a institution and he's keeping up with his master and yeah everywhere they go they leave death and plague and rats yeah knock 
also consuming the blood. Not as much of it, I have to imagine. He's eating flies. And again, you get some great imagery of the spider web. He's looking at those spiders because they catch the flies and eat them. And and just going back into the anti-Semitism, like blood libel, like that's a big thing. They We still got that with QAnon. They're still pushing that kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. But yeah, like now that knock is under, really under his control, he's got to consume the blood too. Even if it is fly blood. Yeah, and they put him in the sanitarium. I can't tell that he's under the care of Bulver, the professor. It, 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 I know typically that's historically the pairing, but for whatever reason, some of these supporting characters, it's hard for me to keep up with with who is who. Yeah, the fact that it's a silent movie adds to that for me. Mm-hmm. Ellen is playing croquet with people. I'm not sure who they are. <laughs> I think it's the shipmaster. They weren't the rich people she's staying with? I, yeah, I thought they were the rich people she was with. I think they were. And uh, yes, uh, she's still doing the sleepwalking thing and calling for him. I must go to him. He's coming. Who will get there first? It is her husband that eventually gets there. Thanks to the Catholics, he does have uh, a little bit of restoration in a Catholic hospital. A nun takes care of him in a scene. But he is able to go home thanks to God. Do we know how long this journey is? Because he is racing. It feels like he knows he needs to get there before Orlock does. And I don't know. It seems like Boat would be much quicker, but maybe going through the mountains on horseback, which he's pulling that horse most of the time, not even riding it. But that seems like it would take a while. It's about a month. Yes, there is a August 17th date of the coffins going on a raft onto the ship and a few other dates that are brought up. So yeah, it feels like that's the time frame, but not as copious in the notation as the Bram Stoker's. Uh, Boy, you know every stop that they make. Every bathroom (laughs) break is uh, logged. Yeah, we'll get a shot of the log later, but it doesn't go in that much detail. But this act four is mostly like Thomas and Ellen are reunited. And is it there them reuniting? It feels like Orlock senses that and like he knows where to go. He like turns corners as he's carrying that coffin to find their home. Mm-hmm. Well, he knew what house he bought anyway. I mean, he's he's living directly across the street from them or across the river, as it were. And so he just kind of smiles. The way I take it is like, oh, you know, you think you have her, but she's really mine. And there's some creepy imagery later where he's at his window trying to summon her. I kept thinking with her, like, love of the ledge, I just thought she was going to fall. I really thought that she was going to go over. So much walking on the balcony, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but she that that is not the way she's going to go out. She reads in the book instead that there has to be a maiden who gives the sacrifice. And she, more than anyone else, realizes it's her job to die in order to end the plague. Because it's spread. I mean, it's in town and the town crier. Remember those? Wouldn't that be cool to bring back? No, I, I don't, Stuart. How old do you think I am? <laughs> no, but I mean, from, from movies, from obviously. From movies, yes. I'm, we should have brought this out. For, I would have taken this job at COVID. This would have been fun to run around on a horse. I mean, I think the Chinese were doing that. Yeah. Like, they go around and lock your house up. Yeah. That's not the fun part. The fun part is ringing the bell and waking <laughs> people up and telling them they'll be arrested if they try to go to the hospital. The plague is so bad, you can't even go to the doctors <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Pretty amazing. But creepy, again. And keep in mind, knowing that they had just had several years of Spanish flu outbreak, this would have been a real horrifying thing to see. It's almost like docudrama, this part of it. This is stuff taken from people's lives. After the war, the soldiers came home and they spread a flu that had COVID-like outcome. Yeah, I wish that it was better sold that this plague is Orlock. It's inferred, but we don't see Orlock out feasting. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. I don't even think Orlock's spreading it. It's all the rats. We see all those rats come out of the boat. Yeah, his soil springs rats, and Judaism and rats were also associated in German propaganda as well. I don't want to get into all of that because it's ugly, but I think it's important to note that this is playing off of ugly conception, racial conceptions of the Jewish people. Right, but I... Is the plague the rats or is the plague Orlock? I kind of took it as... Yeah, the, the rats come from Orlock. He's the spreader of disease. A Nosferatu spreads disease. But is there a disease or is there people being drained of blood and they're calling it a disease? Both. Uh, well, I think Orlock is still trying to mack on Ellen, but I don't. you do not see him going out and breaking in and biting people. We never see it. It's just in the booklet it says people have been found with puncture marks in their neck. The implication is, through all of it, the hazy paranoia is that you let them into your neighborhood and now they're just going to get you somehow. It's not logical. I don't know how he could go around and literally bite everyone here. Again, this is a premise of fear and paranoia. 
I did in my mind. I did not imagine he was doing all the work. I imagined the rats doing most of it. Yeah, I figured the rats were mostly doing it, but he would get hungry and have to dine on a couple of people every night. See, I took it as the rats were being blamed, but the rats didn't actually do anything. That's how I read the scene. No, I think those rats like magically appear from his soil. No, I mean, I I believe he brought the rats, but I didn't believe the rats actually had plague. I thought this was reactionary Germans. I mean, it's that too. Go with it as metaphor. I don't try to parse out, like, did the rat bite it or did the orlock bite it? It's The point is, infestation is at the front door. And the only way to end it, according to folklore, is that one woman, a pure woman, has to die. That flower has to be cut in order to bring the sunlight. It's so weird because, yeah, Ellen's going to find that vampire book that I guess those villagers gave him. And he's like, no, 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 don't read that. So she's got to secretly read it and finds out like, yeah, a very wholesome woman can distract a vampire to stay awake past the crow of the cock. Meanwhile, they're after Nock because, you know, again, the only other Jewish person in this cast, he had gone insane, but then he had choked the orderly busted out of the sanitarium, was running around the fields, was on their roofs. They eventually catch him. How does he go out? I guess he lives at the end. Yeah. It seems like there's a mistaken idea. Like they know there's a vampire now because they mistake him for the vampire and go chasing him. Yes, yes. Well, he's one of them. And indeed, he has a role. He's a, there's the reason why Orlock is here is because this guy tasked Thomas with doing it. But yes, the real vampire, another classic scene, comes for her up the stairs, silhouette. That is the best scene in this movie, I think. It's the posture, right? Like, it just feels like amazing, you know? Like Was that Shrek? It almost feels like they had some kind of prosthetic to right. like, get those shadows. Again, we, didn't, we don't have those bonus features. We don't know. There's no director's commentary. <laughs> yes. This was done in quickly, low budget, I want to add. They didn't have really any money for this. This was all done on the fly, low budget, summer of 1921. And yeah, maybe he just was a vampire. You can just, I'll accept that premise at this point because it's very convincing (laughs) when he comes for her and is chewing on her neck and suddenly the tit goes yellow and he realizes, oops, I've been tricked. Yeah, we cut to a rooster. It was literally the crow of the cock. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Again, these things feel rudimentary now because we as a society have grown up, particularly us, we've watched so many movies, we speak this language very quickly. But for an audience that, again, movies are only 20 years old at this point and maybe lots of people aren't aren't seeing them. You know, this might be the first movie you ever see. Like, this is revolutionary. Yeah, I've, I've watched a, it was a multi-part documentary on the history of film and the, the fact that, like, once they figured out continuity and shots and if someone's, like, on the right side, they got to exit on the right, like, that was a mm-hmm. huge revolution and this feels like it is. it's pieced all those things together. You're going to cut to a rooster so we know that's crowing and then we're going to cut back. Like, again, visually, I appreciate this film. Like, it's not hard to follow visually. And again, I want to say, even if you think you know those rules many times when people shoot movies their first movies and then go into the editing room they realize that they should have followed the rules more closely that's why you sometimes see like frames flipped and like they're mirror images yeah yeah it is a learning curve and this is a movie to study to learn about how to visualize information yeah nosferatu orlock he turns to ash from that sunlight or smoke i mean he disappears i don't see a pile of ash yeah i I assume there's something there we get this long shot after thomas and ellen they're embracing in bed and we get this long shot from the doctor just like staring off somewhere and i thought like is he staring at a like a pile of vampire bones does he see fangs like it's such a long shot he's mourning her death Correct. Yes. A a doctor would jump in there. It seems like she's alive. Like she calls out, she's in bed, she's awake. Yeah. And then she dies after the embrace. And then, yeah, the husband's in there, like her, she's still motionless. And if the doctor ain't jumping in there, it's because she's beyond medical help. I feel like you give that morning scene to Thomas and not the doctor. It, It was weird. Well, Thomas is on her, you know, kind of crying while the doctor watches on. Yeah, he's frozen in, in by the bedside as well. And so the castle in ruins, I guess no sequel. Yeah, death came to an end when Nosferatu died. Yes, until the remake. But until then, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Nosferatu? Jacob. 
Yeah, this is one I really enjoy. Watch it for homework. Watch it for entertainment. It works on both levels. Just the visuals. And that's what you got to go to. Like, that's kind of with, with a silent film. It's kind of going to rely. Does it understand the syntax of movie telling? Does it understand how to create some interesting visuals? And this one, yeah, the, the fact that Shrek, whoever this mysterious actor is, maybe he is a real vampire, but he is, he's grabbing people's heart and he's grabbing mine. Like every time he's on screen, like I am captivated, the, the use of shadow, just the way his body language is. There's a lot of unfortunate subtext in this film, but I, I will never give in to not saying this is a great performance by Max Shrek here. And yeah, as a horror film, like this works for me. It's atmospheric. It has to be because that's, they have visual scores, and that's about it to go on. But it's atmospheric. I love this score. There's a reason I often go back to this one during Halloween. Like, to me, this is the vampire movie to watch. It may not be the best one, but it's the one I enjoy the most. Again, important for the history of film, but also an entertaining horror film. Strong recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, silent films are problematic. I want to just put that, for me, I think for most modern audiences. You, you're saying people 100 years ago thought different than us? Yeah, they certainly experience movies differently than we do. And it's not just that it's silent, because one, it's not. There's a score. There's something audible that we're hearing. And also because, you know, things like Quiet Place tell us that can sometimes be a strength. Sometimes not having sound can be a way of, of making it effective. But it's really the fact that audiences were so naive and that you really had to worry as filmmakers to make sure that people get it. You had to overplay everything. You had to let things go so long, give them so many inner titles, have the actors go so broad in their joy, in their fear, that it really becomes campy. Like, it's just hard to take it seriously. But this one feels differently. It's one of the rare silent movies that I think still plays in 2023, largely because of Max Shrek. I just want to put it out there. An undeniably unnerving Dracula. The first, perhaps still, the most impressive conception of this character that we have. I know Gary Oldman is going to try. He's going to put on a lot of damn wigs <laughs> and float around in kimonos. But I think this is the one that I'm always going to see in my mind. I also would just want to say Murnau is visual trickery. I mean, yes, it now feels quaint. Superimpositions, film negatives, color tinting. We know what he's doing. But even in that, even if we're not you know, mind blown by the visuals, there's a lo-fi charm. There is a be kind rewind, like sweeted version of the <laughs> vampire blockbuster that I just like visually, I enjoy watching. I like the way this movie works and looks and tells a story. And again, I like looking at things through the lens of history. And while it is uncomfortable to realize that in Germany, so many anti-Semitic views were brewing, it's helpful to see that dramatized here. And it's also helpful to think about coming out of a pandemic, how people might have feared that that was going to be the most scary thing you could conceive of was that immigrants moving in, spreading their disease. So yeah, I think that it captures the horror of the Spanish flu, even if, yeah, let's face it, it's not going to scare you uh, in the way that a modern film would. So yeah, I'm definitely going to say keep it in rotation, see it for all the reasons. Don't assume it has nothing to offer you because it is a good film and a timeless one. I appreciate what you guys are saying about this, and I thank you, Stuart, for providing some of the historical context to this film that, I mean, I realized this was World War I-era Germany, but I didn't put together all of the connections with Nazism and anti-Jewish sentiment, so I thank you for giving this film that context. As those who pledged for gold know... I didn't jibe with Metropolis probably because it was a silent film, and I'm learning that I was more open to silent films when I was younger than I am at my current age. Maybe it's I'm less open to that experience now, but while watching Nosferatu, I was really down with it, like I said earlier, for about a half an hour, and then it started to drag, and I do wonder if it's because it was silent. I wonder if this film was a talkie if I'd have been a little bit more forgiving of it. I had a mixed bag of a time watching, and I definitely checked my watch a good number of times while watching. But nonetheless, there is some amazing artistry here that really does hold up to this day. Most movies I watch, no matter when they're made, don't have some of the great visuals that Nosferatu has, especially its use of the shadow of Orlok. And so I can definitely give this a recommend. And, and I say that because if you're somebody who's a bit 
hesitant to jump into a silent film. Guess what? I'm realizing I'm hesitant to jump into a silent film, but I got a lot out of this one. And so I think you will too, and I can give it a recommend. Yeah, and I want to just say, uh, you think that this would have been improved by being a talkie. My memory is the Bella Lugosi one is a real snooze. This one has all the visuals that really will stay with you. And that supposed classic Dracula from 1931 is no classic. But we aren't covering that next week. It was already mentioned. This movie did get remade in 1979 by Werner Herzog. I have never seen that version. You have to see, you'll be interested to see what Arnie thinks, because my memory, I haven't seen it as much as this one, but I've seen it quite a few times, is that it's mostly a remake of this, but just with talking. Okay. Basically the same story. We'll talk about the visuals. Maybe they go different there, but it'll be interesting, Arnie, because I think you'll get what you wanted next week. All right. I'm curious, because I do know that filmmaker can really produce some interesting work, and Klaus Kinski is a scary mofo. Yes. Almost as scary as Max Shrek is Klaus Kinski. So I'm looking forward to it. Never gotten to it, and next week I get my chance. Meanwhile, this Friday, if you want some more classic kind of horror, or at least dystopia, we are reviewing the 1966 film Fahrenheit 451 for our gold donors. Yeah, technically we're covering the dystopias of the 50s because Ray Bradbury's book came out at a time when, yeah, what are we letting our children read? Burn these uncomfortable messages. It's all about censorship, which, frankly, is still a part of our current dystopia can't wait to talk about it. You can find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, travel quickly, travel well into the land of the specters. Time is an abyss. Profound as a thousand nights. Centuries come and go. To be unable to grow old is terrible. Death is not the worst. There are things more horrible than death. Can you imagine enduring centuries, experiencing each day the same futile things? Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. They will no longer be able to say you would have had to have been there. Because the fact is, Alvin, we were. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. I have a task for you. <laughs> Something I don't dare trust to anyone else. <laughs> Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. How long have you been listening? On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. If it's not in frame, it doesn't exist. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Doctor Strangelove, and hundreds more. A wonderful place. A little gloomy, but very exciting. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Listen, the children of the night make their music. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You must come with me and help me to crush this, this monster. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Such is the price of genius. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. I'm willing to pay you double the price. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. <laughs> the monster is here! <laughs>
Associate produced by Jason Latham. What does the master command? Now playing is edited by Arnie. I mean, I'm suffering for my art, Alvin, believe me. Now playing credits read by Brock. I have to say this, even if you think it's foolish. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Even the unthinkable will not deter me. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I see something horrible. I'm afraid. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Thank you. I think we have it. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. And, and, excellent, Gustav. Extraordinary discipline in the face of ridicule. Today we're discussing Nosferatu, starring Max Schreck, Gustav von Wegerheim. <laughs> Come for Dracula, leave with lots of humor about German names. <laughs> Directed by F.W. Murnau. I'm not going to feed into that. I'm not going to start trying to read all those names. Shut it down. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> You got a line, or are you just going to be silent, Arnie? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I have a line. Where is it? But let's get into it, Arnie. Let's find out how close this is to Bram Stoker, given the plot to Nosferatu. Okay, I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> okay, or you could just take a break. <laughs>